Good morning. It's great to see everyone again. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Parks Church. Every time I do this, I think there's going to come a day when I'm not able to move this any longer. My flesh will be weak. I'll have Tyson come and move it for me. That'll be all right when that happens. Well, we are in a um, study. Um, working our way through the book of Ephesians, and um, just uh, before I jump into that, I want to uh, give you a word of welcome, just say how grateful we are that you're gathered with us. I look out and I do see uh, new faces, uh, friends that I have not had a chance to meet before, and some uh, who've been uh, just away for a little while, and great to have you back with us, and um, we're so glad that you're here this morning worshiping with us. And if you are here for the very first time, or perhaps here, um, and maybe it's been a little bit of a time since you've gathered with us, um, we uh, work our way through books of the Bible. That's sort of our habit here at the Parks Church, um, and we're in a study in the book of Ephesians. Um, as uh, Lacey read for us, we're right um, in the middle of chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, um, and so we just began. You can catch up on this study if you want to go to our website, theparkschurchmelissa.com, and you can listen uh, to our previous messages, but uh, the subtitle of this uh, message or this series that we've given is that we may know and live, and you can see that probably behind me on the screen, that we might know who Christ is and know who we are are in Christ and then therefore live accordingly um, is one of the reasons that we have this book, why Paul wrote it, why God gave us this book is that we could rightly understand our identity in Christ. And so uh, we have been working our way through this and um, we find ourselves in verse 11, um, we're going to get through 18, um, Lord willing. And in this text that was read for us, you heard that this um, passage in a sense, is a, a little bit of a, a summary or begins some application of the summary of what Paul has already said in, one through, in chapter 1 and then the first half of chapter 2. He's given us a very robust, as we talked about last week, robust theological statements in understanding who we are in Christ and understanding of the gospel. Chapter uh, 2, verses 8 through 10 that we went through last week, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a very concise message of the gospel. This is who Jesus is, and this is what He has done. We have been saved by grace through faith, a gift of God. And so now, as he's unpacked these very deep and solid theological sort of understanding of who God is and what he has done on our behalf, in this text, he begins to sort of apply this. There's some implications because of who Christ is and because of what he has done. And now, because of, as brothers and sisters in Christ, because of who you are in Christ, then this is how we're going to live. This is what our lives should look like. That's what he's going to get to in verse 11. But I want to back up just one verse to to verse 10 from where we read this morning, because really, as we read in verse 11, it says, therefore, and any time, as you know, if you've been a part of our men's or women's Bible studies, or perhaps uh, just, you know, been around the church a little while, you might know that when we see therefore in scriptures, that means that we need to look backwards. There's a reason. He's saying, because of all that I just said, therefore, this is an implication of that, is what he's opening up for us. So I want to go back to verse 10, just to begin there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ 
Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are, he says, God's greatest work of art. We are his workmanship. That word workmanship in the original language could be described, could be translated, and some translations have gone this route. We are God's poetry, but poetry really isn't the best translation because the word really means all of art, all of God's creative power, his ability to create beauty. And when we think of art, what do we think of? We think of something beautiful, something that's created as we might see a sculpture or a painting or even anything else that we might create. We can look at it and say it's beautiful. Some of you will look at your grass after you've mowed it and you will say this is beautiful. And it is. That's why we do that hard work. We are, but we, it says, are God's greatest work of art. Think of this. We marvel at creation. Kyle just asks, where's your your favorite place to be on the planet? And one of mine, like Kyle's, is to be in the mountains, on top of the mountain, watching the sun rise or the sun set, shortly thereafter going really fast down. (laughs) But just to see that and to watch, just to, just to marvel at his creation. But the most amazing sunset from the top of that glorious mountain, the serenity of laying on the beach and watching the sun come up or the sun go down, whatever you might experience as your favorite sort of place in the world, perhaps it's just sitting by the lake, sitting on your back porch with your kids running in the backyard, wherever that might be, all that you see in creation is second to who we are. They pale in comparison. That great work of art that we often attribute, you'll see it sometime this week, we're going to have a sunset and somebody's going to post the picture of the sunset and it's going to say, look at God's, he's the best painter, he's the best artist or something like that. And that's great to do that, is to to acknowledge God's creativity and and the, the beautiful things that he creates for us. But those things are, they pale in comparison, the word of God says, to you, you are God's greatest work of art. We And even still, greater than that, it says we are his workmanship. And notice what it says next, created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship, so all of the created, the human beings God created, we are his greatest work of art. But for us who are in Christ, those who who call ourselves Christians, who who have been by grace through faith saved, those we have been created twice. We have been created in Jesus And so, we who have been created in Jesus, been born again, created twice, as one commentator might say, we are the pinnacle of creation. We are His workmanship. And He prepared for us beforehand to do great things. Think of it this way. Experts have discovered underneath some of the world's most famous paintings by the world's greatest artists in the world that underneath some of those canvases, one particular, if you want to Google this, you can go look up Picasso's Blue Room. And the Blue Room is one of his most famous paintings. It's one of his early paintings. But underneath the Blue Room, because of the technology that we have, they've discovered that there was another painting, some painting of an individual, a portrait of of a man. And so the the painting painted by Picasso, assumingly, we can assume that if the first one would have been discovered or would have remained, Picasso must not have liked it, but the world would have said, that's a Picasso, and would have thought, that's a great and amazing painting. But he, he came over it, and he created a second painting, the Blue Room, and that now is marveled and is worth millions and millions of dollars. We, how much more than just that painting, who have been created in Christ... 
We're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And so as these new creations, the reason I wanted to start there, verse 11, therefore go and live accordingly, and he's going to begin to unpack what that means for us. As new creations, we go to work doing all the things that God created us to do, all the things that God, although we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive to do. And the first earthly circumstance that he deals with is our relationships with others, how we deal with other people. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. As we consider this text, we have to realize that there is no racial nationalistic, um, any other divide that we experience today in our culture and in our context that is as great as the divide that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. Whatever we look at in our world and we see, and it is very clear there is great division in our nation and around the world, whatever we see does not compare to the gap that existed between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews believed that God created Gentiles. This was their belief, that God created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. It was illegal for a Jew to assist a woman, a Gentile woman, in childbirth because that would be helping to bring a heathen into the world. There's a degree of division there that we probably struggle to wrap our minds around. The Jews were murderous zealots in the Gentiles' minds. And the Gentiles were worthless dogs in the Jews' minds. That's the division that existed that Paul, right after he says, this is who you are in Christ, and you have been created as a new creation to go and do the things he created you, he goes directly to this area of division. And he addresses it point blank. Remember, Gentiles, that you were one time completely far off from God, called the uncircumcision by those of us who are the circumcision, Paul, of course, speaking as a Jew. But notice what he says in verse 13. We're going to go back and look at 11 and 12 a little bit further. But notice what he says, but now, in Christ. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 1, verse 4, but God but God, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4, but God. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. And so he says here in verse 13, or in verse 11 and 12, he describes the situation that the Gentiles found themselves in, far off from God, but then in verse 13, 
but in Christ. There was clear hatred between these two groups of people, both Jew and Gentile, were in need of redemption. They were in need of being reconciled to God. But the nature and the reality is that the Gentiles were even further away from God than the Jews. And Paul, that's what he's making this point in verses 11 and 12. He's describing to the Gentile church in Ephesus who you were. The Jews, at least, what it says, had the promises of God. They were considered the circumcision. They had the covenants. They had all of the Old Testament that I, God told Abraham, I'll make you a father of many nations. The, the Jews had these promises of God to hold on to. But in verse 12, he makes it clear that remember that you were at this time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. You had no nation. We as Jews had the nation of Israel. You had no nation. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no promise from God of what he was going to do in your life. And so therefore, you were without hope and without God. You had no hope because you had no God, Gentiles. You worshipped many small, untrue gods. You worshipped the earth. You worshipped whatever might come in your way. They worshipped many things, but they did not worship the one true God. And so he says to the Gentiles, remember that yes, this is who you are in Christ, chapters 1 and verses 2. Remember how far the Lord came to get you. Remember what he did in your life. The Gentiles were an island to themselves. No God, no promises, no hope. But then in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so he's describing, he's painting this picture that there is Christ where there's the new creation and there was the Jews who were at least somewhat close to the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. Of course, yes, they, most of them missed him, but they were close to God. The Gentiles were far off from God and they were brought near. Verse 11 and 12 were true, but all of that, he says, has changed now. How has all of that changed? How is this who you were? This is the, the people you were. This is the, the hopelessness that you lived in. How has that changed? It's all changed through Christ. Christ came, and now they not only have hope, but they also have something greater than hope. They have peace. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. In the temple, there was a wall. And the wall was this barrier that prevented anyone but a Jew in right standing from entering into the presence of God. So you had these sort of two courts. You had the innermost uh, part where the priests could go in. You had this outer court that Jews were allowed in, and the Jews could come, and that was where they had uh, in their, essentially a, a relationship with God. They met with God inside that inner court. 
the wailing wall that we see on television or perhaps if you've been able to visit Israel and see that in person, that is essentially the wall that is that outermost part of that court where the Jews, they can get closest to what is believed to be where the Holy of Holies was, where the priests would enter in. And so that's why the Jews go to that wall because it's as close as they can get to the temple where they believe they can have union or communion with God. But outside of that court, there was a second court, and it was, this is the area the Gentiles were allowed. Now, they were allowed because they had to be allowed to come in to sell sacrifices or to just do whatever uh, kind of the business that they needed to do, and Jews weren't able to do that. And so Gentiles were allowed in this sort of outer court. But there was this wall, and the wall said that if you enter in, your death will be on your own head. That's the dividing wall. That's the division that existed, again, amongst these two people. And here, though, in this text, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has broken down in his flesh. What he accomplished broke down that wall of division and the wall of hostility. He abolished it. He got rid of it. Continuing, in his flesh, or he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. This idea of peace with God. One of the things that we need to understand as Christians is that we do not have peace with God when we are walking in our sins. Before we've been made alive, all that that's described in chapter 2, 1 through 3, all of that is describing someone who is not at peace with God, who is an, an enemy of God. But in Christ, we have peace. We have peace with God because of what He did. We are no longer His enemies. And because of our reconciliation to God through Christ, we also therefore now have peace with one another, with all of the other people that we have been reconciled to, reconciled with, excuse me. And so we've been reconciled to God and we have peace. There's no longer any hostility between God and man because of Jesus. If there is no longer any hostility between God and us because of Jesus, because of what he has done, Paul is saying, how can you continue to have hostility towards one another, the other people who have experienced the same mercy and grace that you have received? Who are you to hold on to that hostility towards others when you have been given peace from God? He says you can't do that. That is not what Jesus came to accomplish. Christ has torn down the dividing wall. He has, it says, abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, I know what you're thinking. Those of you Bible scholars in the room are saying, but I know Jesus came and he said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Good question. It's right that you asked that. What he's describing here is not an abolishment of the moral law, but an abolishment of the the ceremonial laws, those things that allowed the people of God to enter into relationship or to kind of come into fellowship with him. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what Matthew 5 says. 
And he did not come to abolish the moral law. No, he fulfilled the moral law perfectly because we could not do that. And so making it by fulfilling the moral law perfectly, he was a worthy sacrifice for our sins. That's why Jesus could go to the cross and God the Father would say, this is enough because he was perfect. He upheld every bit of the law perfectly. He fulfilled every bit of it. But he did abolish the ceremonial laws. All of the ceremonial laws related to how man and God could have fellowship with one another. So these ceremonial laws that said the Gentiles are not allowed to enter in past this wall. There is these other, all of the other things that a Jewish person might have to do to cleanse himself in order to go into the temple. He abolished all of those things because the word of God says there is now therefore one mediator between God and man. That man is the person Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is the one who grants us access to the Father. All barriers to God have been taken down by Christ, and we are welcomed into His presence as a gift of His grace. Hear that. All barriers to God. There is no barrier to God. They have been taken down through Christ. And he offers his grace to us, and he welcomes us into fellowship with him. That is why Paul says it this way, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And why did he do that? That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. This message was true for Jews and Gentiles, but it's also true for us. Walls must come down. We have to realize that whatever the walls that existed between Jews and Gentiles, those were human walls, those were man made walls. The walls that divided God from man were cosmic, spiritual walls. And those, those walls were a thousand times greater. There's no wall that a human could create between one another that is bigger or more vast or more powerful or more whatever word you might want to insert there, bigger than, than the walls that exist between God and man. And Jesus tore down those cosmic spiritual walls so that we might have fellowship with him so that we might have union with Him. He is our peace. The dividing wall that separated us from God has been torn down, and so there can no, now, therefore, no longer be any dividing walls amongst us here on earth. And this is where this speaks to us directly. If we are erecting walls of division, we are creating things that Christ came to atone for and to pay for and to tear down once and for all when he shed his blood on the cross. If you're erecting a wall between yourself and men and women of other races, you are erecting a wall that Christ died to take down. If you're erecting a wall between yourself and people of differing political views, you are erecting a wall that Christ died to take down. If you're erecting a wall between you and people of differing socioeconomic uh, circumstances, you are erecting a wall that Christ died to take down. If you're erecting a wall between you and those of different social circles, you're erecting a wall that Christ died to take down. 
If you erect a wall of anything, anything that divides us, anything that would separate us, we are putting up a wall that Christ died to take down because we are called one man. Breaking down the walls of hostility so that there would be one in the place of two because He is our peace. He is our peace. And He has reconciled us, in verse 16 it says, reconciled us both to God. We've both been reconciled to God through Christ. Those who look, act, Feel, believe like me, and I'm not talking about believe in the Christian sense, believe things about the world, and those who differ from me, there is no division. There can be no division because Christ died that we might be one. Walls must come down. If the body of Christ is going to resemble what Christ died for it to be, walls must come down. Many of us this week, I expect, saw a video that touched my heart in a powerful way. And I want to play it for us, and I have a, going to come back and finish. I want us to just watch this little clip. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. There's been a lot said about that young man's forgiveness. For those of you that don't know, Brant Jean t- testifying in court and speaking to his brother's murderer. And there's a lot been said about that video and, and really specifically speaking in the act of forgiveness and talking about how he could forgive. But I want us to look and realize the cause of his forgiveness. I don't know him at all, but here's what I believe, what is his actions testify to me of, of, is a man that seems to know that he was once far off from God, but was brought near by the blood of Christ. And because of that, because he knows who he was, he knows what existed in his own heart. And then he knows what Christ has done. There's thou therefore no hostility in him. There is not even a wall between him and the victim and his brother's murderer. 
There's not a wall between them. If there ever was a wall, he tore it down when he went to give her a hug. I see someone whose forgiveness is rooted in a stronger desire that his brother's murder be made new so that they might be one in eternity. That's what I see in his heart. And we live with such hostility towards others. And here's the deal, brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be the ones who understand the grace of God more than anyone else. We have received the grace of God. And yet, how often, let's just be real with ourselves this morning, how often do we withhold grace and kindness and mercy from those who do anything against us? The moment we feel harmed in any way, we will lash out. We feel anyone stands in the way of us achieving what we think we want for our lives, we will lash out, we will take them down. Those of us who have received the grace and mercy of Christ so often live in this way, and that's not what it should be. We need to remember who we were before Christ came and made us alive together with Him. We need to remember the grace that we have received. This this is a predominantly conservative red state. Texas forever, right? I'll shout that. I love this state. I love our country. But I see Christians mocking, speaking ungraciously, even hatefully towards people of differing political bents. What does that speech do? What does that wall that is established do for you or for me? Does it really do any good? Do we win anyone to the kingdom, the only kingdom that will be lasting forever and ever and ever to the glory of Christ? Amen? We do not. We might win someone possibly, I doubt it, but possibly to our political ideas. And I'm speaking both to the conservative red and the liberal blue. There is now, therefore, no hostility. There's no dividing wall between these two. That's what the Word of God says. The Christian who has been made new in Christ does not see those divisions and definitely doesn't do anything to further it because our belief and our hope is in a kingdom that is everlasting. And I would challenge us as we fight for those things that we believe in, and I believe in that. I believe in standing for truth, anchoring ourselves to the Word of God, but I also know that we are called to be a people of grace and mercy, even with those that we differ with, if not more so with those that we differ with and even amongst ourselves. He says that he has torn down these walls. Far be it from me to erect new walls that he has come to tear down. And here's what I know about my own heart. This is just my confession. When I feel the need to build a wall of division with someone that sees the world differently than I do, when I spew hate towards them, When they spew hate towards me and I respond accordingly, all of those things 
It comes from a lack of understanding, a lack of remembering the grace that I have received. And I would ask us this. Those of us who see the world, those that see the world differently than us and very often do speak hatefully towards the body of Christ, do try and tear down the body of Christ, what would we expect them to do without Christ? Our calling is not to erect new walls to further divide, to demonstrate how we are divided and what lines we divide upon. Our calling and responsibility is to testify to the grace of God in our lives, to tell the world of the grace of God in our lives, to deliver the mercy of God and explain how we've received that mercy of God in our lives. And as we do that, we become a winsome people, a people that win people not to ourselves and not to our party and not to our political beliefs, not to our structure, not to our economic system, but we win them to the kingdom of God. And that, again, is the kingdom that will last. We who know the mercy of God and who have been welcomed into it, by it, through it, should be the most hopeful, kind, gracious people on the planet. We do not respond to the rhetoric with greater rhetoric. That's not the calling on our lives. We anchor ourselves to the truth of God, and we put our hope in an eternal kingdom. Because what will matter in eternity is not what we have fought for or done politically. What will matter is what we have done and what was done for us by Jesus. That is what will last. Look again at verse 18. And he came, or I'm going to back up in 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him we both, both Jew and Greek, have access to the Father. Both black and white have access to the Father. Both brown and black have access to the Father. Both white and yellow have access to the Father. Both Republican and Democrat have access to the Father. Both poor and rich have access to the Father. Both have access to the Father because of what Christ has done, not again on any works that we have done, all a result of His grace and mercy. Christ has come to tear down the walls. He tore down the walls of hostility when he laid down his life for us on the cross. Far be it from us, brothers and sisters, to erect new walls in their places and to divide the kingdom of God further. Let us be a people who live solely for the kingdom of God and trust in God to build his kingdom. I'm going to close with this text this prayer of Jesus, it's a prayer that he voiced in the garden right before he would be turned over to lay his life down for us on the cross from John chapter 17. It won't be on the screen behind me. If you want to flip in your Bibles, turn them on, whatever you'd like to do. But I'm just going to read this prayer of Jesus. And remember, this is Jesus' final prayer, his hope for us. And ultimately, his confidence for us. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, 
the disciples, not just them only, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's all of us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. When we present our lives, the body of Christ, and we declare to the world that in spite of whatever differences that you might see in us, world, as much as it seems like we should hate one another because you all hate one another, as much as we should divide along these lines, we're not going to divide. When the world looks at that and they see us as one, both Jew and Greek, both Gentile and Jew, we are one in His body. The world looks at that and marvels. And what he created us to do, that workmanship, that beautiful picture that he created us to paint when he raised us up in Christ, it declares to the world, glory, glory be to God. Only God could tear down those walls. Only God could allow a man to forgive his brother's murderer. That only happens with God. And so if we are going to be who God has called us to be as the church, we must be one. And we must not allow any dividing walls of hostility to be raised back up where Christ has come to take them down. Let's pray with Jesus that that would be the end. That would be who we were. And let's confess to Him as we're about to sing. We're going to sing of the mercy of God. And as we began this morning... If you've created walls, if you've erected those walls, let me just tell you, I've done that, and I've confessed that to Jesus, and he has been merciful with me. He has not cast me out. He hasn't said, I'm done with you. He said, I love you. He's received me, just as he will to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray. In your name, the very words that you prayed in the garden thousands of years ago, and Lord, I have no better words than you, what you would offer up to the Father on our behalf. I would ask, Lord Jesus, help us to believe through your word that we may all be one, just as you and the Father are one. And you were in him, and we are now in you. Help us to be one, so that the world might believe that you sent us, that you established us for your purposes. Your glory is at work in your body here, Lord Jesus. And you have given it to us so that we might declare to the lost, broken, those who are far off from you, that world, we might declare to them that we are one. Help us to become perfectly one so that the world would know that you sent us and the world might marvel at your glory. Lord, we confess that we too often 
do not live with our minds set on your kingdom and with our hearts secured in your identity that you created in us, that you raised us to life to be. So we confess that to you again, Lord, and we ask that you'd help us. Would you just show us your mercy and help us to live in the way that you've called us to? We ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Parks Church of Melissa podcast. We meet at 1030 Sunday mornings at Melissa Middle School, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. The Parks Church, for the city, about a person.